I hate to break up the party, but if we don't start, y'all are going to think my sermons are long. That can't be true. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, we are in a series of Revelation. Uh, this is week 30. Um, so uh, we're sort of going towards the end now, but um, if you're new, I'd love to meet you after the service. Um, we're just a group of messed up people who are finding our way through this life through our faith in Christ, and He's changing us, and He's molding us, and He's shaping us. And, and the more we see Him in the Scriptures, the more we see ourselves, and the more we realize how desperate we are for someone to save us from ourselves. And that's basically why we're here. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be connecting the dots between the Easter story and Revelation. One of the most amazing things to me about the Bible are the threads that run through the Bible. You want to find Easter in Revelation? It's there. You want to find Revelation in the Easter story? It's there. You want to find Revelation in Genesis? It's there. You want to find Genesis and Revelation? It's there. It all connects. It's incredible to me. Victory for us was achieved on a Friday 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. But it'll be fully realized at the end of tribulation when Jesus returns and reigns as Lord God Almighty. Today, we're going to connect the dots between the Passover Seder that Jesus held before he went to the cross and the wedding supper of the Lamb that we're going to experience when he returns. So you have to understand a few things about Jewish culture. One is throughout the Bible, meals are very, very important. Eating with someone indicated that your relationship with them was solid. You never, ever ate with somebody you had a problem with. 1 Corinthians 5.11, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. You see, extending bread to someone was understood to be a gesture of love, a gesture of friendship, an expression from your heart. The Jewish people were very into hospitality, and they wanted to welcome everybody. But if there was a problem in the relationship, they solved the problem before they shared bread together. Very similar to the teachings that we have in the scriptures of solving problems with your brothers and sisters before you take communion or before you come to the altar with the sacrifice. It's a key part of the Christian experience. We're to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and churches throughout history have been big into picnics and potlucks and celebrations, and that's what churches do, and we're really good at it. <laughs> All involving sharing a meal as a church family, and throughout Scripture, great moments are often celebrated with food. So as we look at this, in Revelation, we see this pattern continue as Jesus invites us not to the wedding of the Lamb, we're going to see the wedding supper of the Lamb. In order to understand what's happening here, we really need a clear understanding of the Jewish wedding process. If you, if you don't really understand the Jewish wedding process, the scriptures can be very confusing. So let's take a look at what, what a typical wedding process looked like in first century Jewish culture. Weddings were huge. It was the biggest event of the town every year. It started about a year before the actual wedding ceremony. Custom has three parts, the betrothal or the proposal, the wedding ceremony, and then the wedding celebration or supper. First, there's a betrothal dinner, a dinner where the covenant proposal is made. The contract of marriage is signed by the parents of each of the bride and groom, and a dowry is ready to be paid to the bride or her parents. Then a cup of wine is offered to the bride. If she drank it, it meant that she accepted the proposal. If she didn't drink it or it wasn't offered, then the proposal was withdrawn. So instead of getting down on one knee and shooting videos on all the social media platforms, they had this different idea where they brought the two families together. The fathers of both would agree to the covenant, and then they would have a dinner where wine is offered to her from the groom, and if she accepts it, then they're as married as married can be, even though they haven't had a ceremony yet. 
And that's exactly where Joseph and Mary were when she was discovered to be pregnant. They were betrothed, not yet gone through a wedding ceremony. The second step occurred much later, usually about a year later. The bridegroom, accompanied by his male friends, went to the house of the bride at midnight, create a torchlight parade through the streets, and this could only occur after the groom had spent a year building a room onto the father's house to prepare for his bride. And when the room was ready and the father said it was okay, he could go get his bride. Once the father gave the proposal, the bride would know in advance that at some point the groom's gonna come, but she never knew exactly when it would be. So she had to be ready all the time. Then they would join the parade and they'd go back to the father's house. Once she arrived at the father's house, she would prepare herself for the wedding the very next day. On that day, the wedding ceremony was performed, but very few were actually invited to it, only closest family. After the intimate ceremony, the bride and groom would go away for seven days, what we call a honeymoon. Usually, they would go away for seven days, and when they returned, everybody would announce that the bride and groom are back and it's time to have a party. Okay? So the wedding supper, the dinner, the party occurred after they got back from their honeymoon. Now, it turns out in Jewish culture that going away on a honeymoon was just to the room you created. But seven days later, they would come and they would celebrate everybody in town was invited to the wedding supper. And the wedding supper would often go on for days. This is the setting of Jesus' miracle of turning water to wine. It was the party. Everybody in town was, was brought there. So we have three events, a betrothal dinner, a wedding ceremony, and a wedding supper. And when you read scripture, you need to be able to separate those three out. Now, the last supper, Jesus is headed into Jerusalem, and he tells him, hey, go find a place for us to celebrate the Passover dinner something we call a Seder. Seder just means order of things. So this Seder has been done exactly the same for hundreds of years. And Jesus says, we need to celebrate the Passover dinner. Go find this place. And he tells him how to do that. Now this Passover Seder, most people thought at the time it would be a regular Seder like they'd done before. But Jesus changes this thing like crazy. In fact, he turns the Seder into a betrothal dinner. He uses the Passover Seder that's been there for hundreds of years and makes some significant changes to make an invitation for his bride. Jesus celebrated the Passover on the night before he was to be slaughtered. Traditional service called a Seder, which means order, including scripture readings, prayers, symbolic foods and songs. It's been done the same and has remained essentially unchanged for 2,000 years. The same Seder that Jewish people and others celebrate now is exactly the same one that Jesus celebrated, and it's exactly the one that had been in place for several hundred years before Jesus came to earth. It's an order, it doesn't change. The songs and traditions go back to the Middle Ages, but the basic order has always stayed the same. Importantly, the order was in place when Jesus celebrated the Passover dinner and with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. The very same order of service. And when we understand the order of service, some of the things that Jesus did that night start to make a lot of sense to us. First for the Passover dinner was the preparation. A Jewish family would have to make sure that every bit of leaven had been removed from their home. Leaven is, is a bread, and, and what happens is there's Passover, and then there's a seven-day celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And most people combine those two events into one. So part of the goal before you do anything else is to examine your house for leaven, to examine your house for sin. Everything with God starts off with a self-examination. Leaven or yeast in the Bible is symbolic of sin. If it gets in the dough, it begins to ferment, it rises, it puffs up, just like we do when we're in sin. We rise and we puff up against God. So Orthodox Jewish women do a spring cleaning that starts many weeks in advance. 
Floor scrubbed, pockets checked, clothes laundered, cooking utensils scalded, everyday cookware replaced with the finest Passover china, silver, crystal. The woman spends weeks cleaning the house. But only men are allowed to deem that the house is actually clean. Just tells you God has a sense of humor. She cleans the house, but only the father can certify that it's actually clean. But the wife leaves a little bit of leaven somewhere in the house. And it's the father's job to go find it. Okay? My suspicion is the way this has gone the year before determines how hard it is to find. But he's to go through the house, find it. He carries a wooden spoon, a linen napkin. He finds the leaven. He uses the feather to scoop up the leaven into a spoon. He wraps them in linen and then he goes to the synagogue and he burns them there. He recites a prayer, and then he can declare his house free of all leaven. Paul mentions this custom in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Leaven is a symbol for sin. Unleavened bread, also called matzah, is a symbol of righteousness before God. At the Passover Seder, the seating arrangement is important. It's always celebrated in the home. The seating is specifically arranged. The leader sits at the head of the dinner table. The youngest sits at his right side. It's going to be important later in the Seder. Left of the leader is the guest of honor. More often, an empty seat for the prophet Elijah. They know the prophecy of Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What they don't know are the words of Jesus. For all the prophets and law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. And what we're going to see throughout this Seder is that this Seder is all about Jesus. I mean, you're going to look at it and you're going to go, oh my, this is incredible. But the Jewish people don't know Jesus, so they don't see it. They do things, they don't even know why they do them, and to us it's like, well, that's pretty obvious, but they don't know. We're going to see that. Now, in ancient Egypt, only free people could recline at a table while eating. Slaves had to stand while eating. So on the first Passover, when they stood ready to go, they were the sign of slaves. Now they use pillows to remind them that they've been set free. They're no longer held in the bondage of slavery. They can recline at the table like free men. The mother or woman of the house usually began the service by lighting the festival candles. She covers her eyes and she recites a blessing over the candles. The blessing is this one. Blessed are thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has set us apart by his word and in whose name we light the festival lights. In the same way, it's through a woman that the light of the world came to earth. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a light to the Gentile and glory to my people Israel. Isaiah said it this way, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And Christ's followers at this point recite a messianic blessing. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe who sanctifies us through Jesus, the Messiah, the light of the world. With the candles lit, Passover Seder begins. Now, once the leaven has been removed, the candles have been lit, the father begins to play a very key role. He's the head of the household. He is the priest of the family. As such, he puts on a white linen robe called a kittel. It symbolizes purity and priesthood. This is the same garment worn by priests. Many wear this garment when they get married as grooms. Many, many choose to be buried in it. 
So Jesus, as the head of the Last Supper, likely wore this garment on the night before he was crucified. He's dressed as a priest, as a groom, and in burial clothes. The kittle is likely what was referenced in the linen cloth that Jesus was buried in. The head of the Seder also put on a head covering symbolizing a crown. The leader of the family stands up and he pours the first cup of wine. Now each person has one cup of wine, but it's going to be filled four times. And these cups are critical to understand. We're going to go through them one by one. Each one specifically represents a promise that God gave them in Exodus chapter 6. Let's look at that. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment, and I'll take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. So throughout the Seder, they drink four cups of wine. Wine is associated with celebration and life. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. One cup is called the redemption cup. One cup is called the delivery cup. It all comes from that passage in chapter 6 of Exodus. The first cup, I will bring you out. This is the cup of rescue. He asks everyone to stand, then he lifts up his cup, he says a prayer, and he recites the Kadash, which is a prayer of sanctification. Jesus would have read this blessing. So think about this, the very same words the night of the Passover Seder. Blessed are thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe and creator of the fruit of the vine. It is at that point, the Last Supper, that Jesus says this. He says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus is telling them, Look, we've celebrated Passover before. But this one, this one I've been waiting for. This one's different because it's not just a Passover Seder. It's a betrothal dinner. I've been waiting to do this before I suffer. I've earnestly been looking forward to doing this. The word in Hebrew actually means I've lusted for this moment to happen. He took the cup, he gave thanks. And he begins to speak of a new covenant, a new Passover. On that day will be celebrated in the future when everything's been completed. The next thing that happens is somebody brings him a bowl of water and the head of the family is to wash their hands. They bring him a bowl, they bring him a towel. It's a symbolic act of purification. He washes his hands and purifies himself on behalf of the family. It is a high honor in the Passover Seder to be the one who washes their hands and leads the Passover. It's an acknowledgement of his position of influence and his efforts throughout the last year to lead the family spiritually. It's most important that he cleans his hands to purify and to represent the honor reserved for somebody of his influence. Everybody else can wash their hands later. But at this moment, when Jesus should be stepping up to the front, taking the position of authority and power and washing his hands to purify that he's clean, he does something unheard of. Rather than take the moment to reflect on his authority, he stoops down and teaches the disciples a lesson about what it really means to be a servant. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Now, you have to understand, washing someone's feet was considered the most disgusting thing you could do. It was the one thing you could not ask a slave to do for you. 
Okay, to us, it'd be very similar to caring for somebody's bowel issues. That's literally how they saw it. Jesus took off the Kaddish, the symbol of authority. He placed it down. In other words, I'm taking off my symbol of authority. I'm stooping to the lowest place I can go. It was culturally unheard of. What are you doing? Jesus at that moment is supposed to be symbolizing authority and purity. And yet he steps down from that position to serve others. In steps Peter, my favorite. This is the worst day of Peter's life, by the way. Everything he thinks to do is wrong. Everything. It's like whack-a-mole. Just Peter. And he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? What he's really asking, are you the one in authority here or not? This is not your role. And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now. But afterwards, you'll understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. After the washing, the next step in the Seder is green vegetables dipped in salt water. And then they're eaten. And it's a reminder that the Passover occurs in the springtime. It represents life. The salt water is a reminder of the tears of pain and suffering the Jewish people had in slavery. For those who know Jesus, it's a reminder of the pain and suffering that Jesus endured for us so that we could experience the new life of springtime. Because of God's grace and mercy, we find life among tears and suffering. We too have been freed from slavery, freed from sin. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and after Peter cut off the ear, and he said, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. And Peter's like, what in the world? So they go up these stairs to Caiaphas's house, who's the high priest. And this, these are pictures from there. Um, so Jesus, imagine being courted by the guards. They're going to the high priest's house. They get there to the courtyard. Okay, this is where Peter is warming himself by the fire. It's where he denies Christ three times. It's where Jesus sees him. They lock eyes. Interestingly, the next picture um, is a dungeon under Caiaphas's house. And I'm going to tell you just a quick story. I took my son when he was 11 to Israel. And we went here and we stood here and we watched and we looked at this and you'll see the pictures in a minute that make it even worse. And for the next three hours, my son didn't say anything. And I finally asked him, I said, are you okay? And he goes, yeah, yeah. I said, that house was pretty hard to look at, wasn't it? He goes, yeah, I just don't understand. He's 11 years old. What don't you understand? Why does a priest have a torture chamber in his house? I still don't have an answer. This chamber is not just any chamber. Let's go to the next slide, please. This is how you look down into it. So this is the view from the bottom of the chamber looking up. Next slide, please. These holes above this doorway is where they strap leather bands to hold people up so they could torture them. Okay, so they would put leather bands through there. They'd tie their arms up and then they would whip them. Let's go to the next picture. You can't see it very well, but down on the bottom of the floor, there's these round circles. See those? Can you see those down here? I don't know. They're right there. Anyway, the round circles, do I have a, no. Um, they're about 10, or 10 gallons deep, like a five-gallon bucket twice. And they filled them with salt water. And so they could splash the person that they're whipping to make it hurt worse. Okay. Next picture, please. Now, it's very likely that that is the place where Jesus spent the night before his crucifixion. The suffering that Jesus went through for us is incredible. We always talk about how he suffered on the cross. I always tell people, no, he didn't. He suffered all the way to the cross and then on the cross. The suffering began the night before. It began when they were whipping him, when they were torturing him. He crawled to get to the cross so he could die. That was his goal. The, the green vegetable reminds us of the life that comes through suffering. 
The next thing that happens in the Seder is the unleavened bread or the matzah. Matzah bread looks very similar. Uh, you may have seen this in the stores. You may have had it before. We use it for communion. It's unleavened bread. But it's interesting that the matzah bread in Hebrew, they have what's called a matzah tosh or bag. They take three pieces of bread and they divide it into a different container. One, two, three. Okay? Three pieces of bread, one bag, all in unity. The rabbis disagree about why they do this. They've done it for hundreds of years. They don't really know why. They just do it. Some say it's the unity of the patriarchs. Some say it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Others say it's unity of Israel. Each piece of bread, some say, represent the priests and the Levites and the people. But Christ's followers know what these three things are. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Altogether one, altogether divided. Jesus said, this is my body. This is my matzah bread. The bread itself is unique. There are holes poked in it to make sure that it doesn't rise, that there's no leaven. And it's baked on a rack which produces brown stripes. It represents sinlessness. It's unleavened, it's striped, it's pierced. Jesus was sinless, striped, pierced, and Isaiah predicted that 700 years before. For he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was pierced, and by his stripes we are healed. The matzah bread represents Christ. And during the Seder, you won't believe that during the Seder, the Jewish people do something very interesting with the middle matzah, Father, Son, Spirit. At one point, they reach into the bag, pull out the middle matzah. They break it. They wrap it in a linen bag, just the middle piece, which they call the afakoman. Word meaning, he who is to come. Guess what they do with it? They take the middle piece, take it outside the room, and go hide it somewhere. Buried, if you will. It's an important part of the Passover Seder. The Seder can't continue until later on somebody finds the middle matzah and brings it back. That comes a bit later in the Seder. The next thing that happens is the youngest of the group, who's sitting to the right hand of the leader, asks four questions. These are usually asked by the youngest child. They're designed to give the father a chance to retell the story of Passover. Oral tradition and passing on the stories to the next generation is a key part of Passover. So the child asks the question and the father goes, oh, well, let me tell you. You can imagine how long my Passover would probably last. Let me tell you, I could go on to this for hours. First question, why is this night different from all other nights? Other nights we eat leavened and unleavened bread. Why on this night do we eat only unleavened bread? The next question, on other nights we eat all kinds of herbs, but on this night only bitter herbs. Why? Third question, on other nights we do not dip even once, but on this night we dip twice. Fourth question, on other nights we eat sitting or reclining, but on this night we sit only. Often the youngest would recline upon the leader in this position. If they were a child, they would climb into their father's lap. John was the youngest disciple and therefore would have been seated to Jesus' right hand. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. John would have had the honor of asking the four questions that night. Then comes the second cup. This is the cup of plagues or deliverance. If you remember, I will deliver you. Each plague is red, and blood is poured out of this cup onto a white linen-covered saucer. Wine is the symbol of joy. They pour out a bit of wine with each plague. 
to remind themselves that they do not have joy unless they're suffering of others. Each plague lessens their joy. So imagine Jesus at this moment pouring out drops. What they do is they have a white linen napkin and they take the wine and they put their finger in it and with each plague that's read, they drop a drop of wine onto the napkin which looks like blood being spilled. Okay, every plague. And it reminds them that they got their joy but only at the expense of great suffering. So imagine Jesus at that moment dropping red wine that looks like blood onto a white linen napkin of purity. Each time they read the plague, blood, frogs, lice, wild beasts, hail, locusts, and then finally, firstborn. The next thing that happens is the dipping of the matzah bread. The unleavened bread is broken. A blessing is spoken over it. The bread is dipped in horseradish, a bitter herb. And it's so bitter, it's to make people cry. It's at this point in the Seder what they would do is they would take the matzah bread, they had a horseradish type sauce, and they would dip it in and taste it. It was remind them of the bitterness. It's at this moment that Jesus does something very unusual. As they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. They were very sorrowful and began to say to one another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. It's talking about the matzah. It's talking about the horseradish. The Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to the man to whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he would not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Go and do what you must quickly. You see, Judas was not invited to the betrothal. He wasn't invited to the dinner. Jesus could not share a dinner with him. He was betraying him. The next thing that happens is they have a huge meal. Lamb and other things, they celebrate a meal together. They had to get Judas out of the room to be able to do this. Okay? Huge feast towards the end of the meal. During the meal, the children are sent to go find the hidden afikoman to go find the hidden middle piece of matzah. Go find it. The middle matzah was taken away, it was wrapped in linen, and it was hidden. The child who finds it returns with great excitement to the table. I have found the lost matzah. He gives it to the head of the Seder, and a reward is paid to the child. The child who finds the middle matzah gets a reward. He takes it and he breaks it and he takes the middle matzah and he gives a piece of it to every person at the table. Everyone shares in the middle matzah. Does that remind you of anything? It represents the unity, the middle portion, broken in linen, buried and brought back. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We know why. Jesus is the middle matzah. He's the Son of the Trinity. He was broken, wrapped in linen, buried, and brought back for a ransom. And all who find him get a reward. He conquered sin and death. And on the last night, the last supper, Jesus took the second matzah, bread, pierced, striped, broken, buried, and brought back to life. And he says this, this bread, this second matzah, he broke it and he gave it to them and said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body given for you. I'm the middle matzah. But it doesn't end there. It's time for the third cup. This cup is from I will redeem you. This is the cup after dinner. It's a cup of redemption. It's to look back on how God redeemed them from Egypt looking forward to the final redemption to come from the Messiah. This is the cup that Jesus lifted next. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, that defines it as the third cup. Everything in Scripture is there for a reason. The cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. 
this is a new covenant in my blood, the cup of redemption I'm now passing to you, my future bride. Are you going to drink from it or not? Are you going to accept the payment or not? You see, this is the cup of redemption. I've made a new covenant. I'm inviting you to be betrothed to me. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. The prior covenant was the Mosaic covenant. It was written on tablets in God's hand, but now Jesus is moving this forward to a new covenant in his blood written on your heart. Jeremiah 33, for this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their sins, I will remember their sin no more. Jesus is inviting them into a journey with him. This is my body, this is my blood. It's the cup of redemption. Drink from it and accept the offer I'm giving you. I'm offering you a new covenant. Exactly. I'm asking you to marry me. Animal sacrifice is no longer necessary. I'm the Lamb of God. Sacrificed once and for all. Picture Jesus standing in the upper room. What he's saying is what you've been waiting for for 3,500 years is happening right now in this moment. For 3,500 years, people have looked forward to a new covenant. Thousands of Passover celebrations, all pointing to one last supper that God wove into the Passover, the greatest redemption story of all time. Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, this is a new covenant. Do you want to join me? Come, follow me. It's the invitation to marriage. Then the fourth cup, the cup of praise and acceptance, the cup that represents, I will take you to be my people. But on that night, Jesus did not drink from this cup. Here's what he says. I'll tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Drinks from the cup of redemption, but not this cup. Why? Because with the rejection of the Jews, he knew his acceptance was not yet complete. He couldn't celebrate. He couldn't throw a party. He couldn't be totally happy because only the Gentiles had come home. He chose not to celebrate this cup until all the Jewish people who believed in Christ returned to him. This cup can only be celebrated, he says, when we're all at home with the Father. Then my joy will be complete, and then I'll drink from the cup of joy. The praises continue as the Seder comes to a close. They always sing the same closing hymn. Every Seder, including in Jesus' time, was finished with the last half of the Hallel, Psalm 115 through 118. Think about Jesus leading people to sing this song as they're headed towards or soon to head towards the Garden of Gethsemane. We know what he's going to pray for. We know where his heart is. We know he's troubled. The portion of the Hallel starts like this. Our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. Think about Jesus singing those words as he heads towards Gethsemane. Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Then his heart moves to thanks. Unbelievable. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. He's reminded of his rejection. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He sings these words just a few days before. They welcomed him into Jerusalem just a few days before, and now they're yelling, crucify him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And on this dark day, this imagine Jesus singing, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. 
That's the Passover Seder. This is when Peter and Jesus have another one of their interactions. Notice this. And when they had sung a hymn, we know when that occurs, right? Because the Seder's never changed. They went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away from me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus says to him, truly, truly, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now, I feel sorry for Peter. Honestly, I do. He goes there. They come to get him. And Jesus says, watch this. Or uh, Peter says, watch this, Jesus. I told you I'd die for you. And he takes his sword and he whacks off an ear. And Jesus bends down and says, I'm sorry, he didn't mean to do that. And he picks up the ear and he puts it back on. And then he, Peter's doing what he just promised he would do. But that's not what Jesus had for him that night. This ends the betrothal dinner. It's where we live right now. We've accepted Jesus' invitation. We've agreed to the covenant. We've gone to, he's gone to prepare a room for us in his father's house. When that room is ready, he will come and get us. We wait expectantly for him to take us to the wedding ceremony, the moment when Jesus raptures us to heaven as his bride. We move forward now to Revelation. Babylon, the great prostitute, has been destroyed. Both religious and political worldviews against Jesus have been utterly destroyed. And because of that, a massive party is breaking out in heaven. Revelation 19.1. And this I heard seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of the servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. After the destruction of Babylon, after the destruction of both the world religion and the world principles of Babylon, Babylon is everything against God. Political, religious, economic, cultural, social, it's all been destroyed. All that's left is God and goodness. And for that reason, a praise party breaks out in heaven. Finally, Babylon, everything about the world is done. Jesus reigns. The party is going to be incredible. And the 24 elders, four living creatures, fell down and worshiped God who's seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. This is the victory celebration. This is the massive party everybody on earth who follows Jesus has been waiting for. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Not only has Babylon been defeated, but there's another reason to celebrate in heaven. The marriage of the Lamb has occurred. Another reason to celebrate, you see, the bride of Christ, all New Testament believers from the Gentile period into the tribulation, the bride, those who accepted Christ as their Savior, have been in heaven before because they were raptured. And now they're returning. They are the bride that was married, went away for seven days, seven years of tribulation, and now have come back with the whole town. It's time to celebrate. These New Testament believers drank the cup of the marriage covenant. They were sealed with the dowry, the Holy Spirit, that promises the promise. Jesus prepares a room for each of us. When the Father gives his approval, the bridegroom came at the rapture. 
The New Testament believers who were ready for the rapture were taken to heaven where they got ready and immediately had a wedding ceremony, an intimate wedding ceremony between them and Christ. After that, they go away for seven days, tribulation, seven years. During the time that we are celebrating our marriage to Christ, the world will be falling apart in the tribulation. We then return with Christ and go get the rest of the believers who have died or who are being martyred. At that point, everybody comes back home to heaven. And when they come back, they're going to hear the party. They're going to hear the celebration. Everybody's going to be rejoicing. And now everyone is invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Notice the tense in the verses here. The marriage of the Lamb has come, past tense. The bride has made herself ready, past tense. Was granted to clothe herself, past tense. The wedding is over. The raptured church, the bride of Christ, New Testament believers have wed Jesus. It occurred in heaven right after the rapture and during the tribulation. We returned with him to destroy Satan. Now Babylon is defeated. A party breaks out in heaven and the word goes out for all who believe to come home. Jesus offered the cup of redemption to all who would drink from it. So we're engaged in a covenant relationship with him. The relationship is sealed. The dowry has been paid, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus does this, Ephesians 1, 11. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of our glory. In other words, you've been promised in a covenant relationship to be married to Christ. The Holy Spirit is your payment, your dowry. It's the promise that it's sealed, that the thing's done. There will be a day when it's fully realized when you are married. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it was not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You see, we wait and we prepare for our groom to come get us for the wedding. He could come at any moment and we have to be ready. The moment when Jesus comes for us is the rapture. It's the next event on the prophetic clock. Nothing has to happen for the rapture to happen. It's next. The bride of Christ are the believers who lived after Christ was here and put their faith in him. They are separate from Old Testament saints whose faith is based on looking forward to a Messiah coming. Once we're raptured, we'll be taken to the wedding ceremony with Christ. After the ceremony, we'll go away with our Lord for seven years of tribulation, seven days. And then when we come back, now everybody has been saved by Christ. He's brought everybody back to heaven. The Old Testament saints, the New Testament believers, the tribulation martyrs, those who survive, everybody. The only people remaining that exist love Jesus and have taken faith in him. So they all return, and there's a massive wedding celebration, a wedding supper that everybody's invited to. Everybody. It's here that Jesus will finally drink the fourth cup. Everybody's home. I can celebrate. The mission's accomplished. Now we can praise. Now we can be thankful. All the Jewish believers have come home all the tribulation saints have come home, all the Old Testament saints have come home, and the bride of Christ is coming home again. This promise that Jesus made in the Last Supper is now being fulfilled. Those of us who have accepted Jesus' cups of deliverance and redemption, we're to remind ourselves frequently of his return. In fact, by celebrating communion, we recreate the third cup, the cup of redemption, every time. Yes, I'm in. Yes, I'm reminded of what this means. Yes, I understand the price that was paid. Yes, I understand I'm in a covenant relationship. 
yes, I'm not to be with anybody else. There's nobody else I love more. There's nobody else I care about more. I'm just waiting for you to take me home. That's what communion is about. Believers reminding themselves that they have accepted the covenant. This is my body. This is my blood. Each time we take covenant we, or communion, we remind ourselves that it's his blood and it's his body that was given for us, and we've accepted his proposal and his promise of the new covenant. In a minute, we're going to celebrate communion. I want you to spend a little bit of time thinking about the third cup of redemption, what it means that you're agreeing with Christ to drink from the cup, the cup that is his blood, the bread that is his body. For this I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, say at the cup after supper, the third cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Look at that last verse. For each, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You renew your covenant. You proclaim his death, not to everybody else, although that does happen, but to yourself. I'm remembering why I'm here. I'm remembering why this is important. I'm remembering what Jesus did on that Seder, and I'm remembering what he promises will happen at the marriage supper. I'm all in. Anything, anywhere, anytime, any cost, I'm all in. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it always forces us to look at ourselves. When we understand what communion represents, we understand a little bit better why you told us not to take it lightly, to examine ourselves. We understand why communion is only for those who are believers, who have faith in Jesus. So if you're not yet there, it's okay. Just sit and think about what we've been talking about. But for those who are believers, we are to examine ourselves, we're to take communion, and we're to proclaim his death until he comes. So God, open our hearts as we open ourselves to the reminder of the covenant, the new covenant in his blood. Lord, please come quickly. We look forward to the wedding. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.